Well, brothers and sisters, we are continuing today in our study of the book of Leviticus, and in particular with the offerings and sacrifices of the Old Covenant, which is really the content of chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus. We began this study last week by looking first at the burnt offering, or perhaps what is better called the whole burnt offering, which is the first sacrifice mentioned in the book of Leviticus. We saw that this is mentioned first because, as Gordon Wenham calls it, it is the commonest of all sacrifices. Um, when I was the, the analogy that keeps coming back to my mind, maybe this is kind of a lame analogy, but I kept thinking of, you know, like if you get a car, there's, there's different trims you can get. You can get, like we have a Corolla S, there's a Corolla LE, there's XLE, there's all that stuff. The most basic model that all the poor people have to buy, right? Um, that's just the most base model. There's no other trimmings on that. It's just normal. In many ways, we could think of that as, uh, we could think of the, the whole burnt offering that way. It's the most basic kind of offering or sacrifice that there is, and it was one of the most common kind of sacrifices in the Old, Coven- or in the Old Testament, particularly before the giving of the law. Furthermore, we saw in the burnt offering two basic elements of sacrifices and offerings that we will see again and again as we look at all the different sacrifices of the Levitical law. On the one hand, we saw in the burnt offering a negative element that we will see again and again, namely that it atones for sin. There's something that it removes. It it gets rid of sin. There's forgiveness that it brings. We could call it a negative element, if you will. On the other hand, there is a positive element as well. Um, you know, so often we think of sacrifice more in negative terms, but it could be a positive worship experience as well. Um, it took care of sin, but it was also giving back to God. There was something good and joyful about it as well. We saw this with the burnt offering. There is an element that we could say is not sin-focused, namely that this is a food offering to the Lord. It's giving back worship and thanksgiving. And really, those two elements are kind of things we're going to see to varying degrees in all of the sacrifices and offerings in one way or another. As we considered last week, Christ Jesus is our whole burnt offering insofar as he atones for sin and he is our perfect worship before God. Well, let's now consider the grain offering, the next offering, the second one mentioned in the book of Leviticus And at the end, we will ask and see, how is Christ our grain offering as well? Let's pick up in verse 1. It says, When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord... Stop right there. Here we have the second kind of offering mentioned in the book of Leviticus, namely the grain offering as it is translated by all modern translations, at least the ones that I could find. The word itself, however, mincha in Hebrew, is not the word for grain or wheat. It's not even related to those words at all. It's not necessarily an unfitting translation, however, since as we can see from the context, it's often associated with either wheat or grain or bread. We see this in verse 12. Um, Also, it's connected with the Feast of Harvest or First Fruits. This is when Israelites would come bringing their sheaves of wheat or grain um, as the first fruits. 
Um, that's often associated with the grain offering. There would be grain offerings given then. That's why it's mentioned in verse 12. Also, uh, similarly, at the culmination of the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, Israelites would also bring sheaves of wheat again, kind of at the end of harvest, and they would make grain offerings then as well. So it's, it's quite appropriate that this is called a grain offering since it's somehow often associated either with bread, grain, or wheat. That being said, we do want to inquire into the meaning of the word because it will help us to unravel, I believe, the meaning of the grain offering and the purpose that it served and really the way it was understood. Um, in, in the words, sometimes the meaning of words don't shed all that much light. In this time, uh, I think it actually is very, very helpful. As I said, the Hebrew word for grain offering is the word mincha. It doesn't mean grain. It doesn't mean wheat necessarily. Most broadly, the word can simply mean an offering or a sacrifice, and not just one of grain. It can also refer to animal sacrifices as well. For example, in Genesis 3, both the offerings of Cain and Abel, Cain's being from the fruit of the ground, presumably wheat or grain, and Abel's being from the flock, a burnt offering, as we saw last week, both are said to be mincha in Hebrew, even though one is an animal sacrifice. Even in that passage, however, the meaning is probably not so much of an offering or a sacrifice, but that of a gift, a gift and particularly, a gift given in tribute. It's not just a gift that you might give to someone who is your equal. It's not a gift you would give to someone who is your inferior. It's specifically a gift given in tribute to someone who is your superior, someone who is your Lord. And in giving so, you are basically saying, I am your servant. That's the kind of gift it is. We see this in several interesting ways in the Old Testament. For example, with Jacob, or Israel, when he's about to meet his brother Esau, remember, he's, he's terrified, right? He, he has to leave because his father-in-law is giving him trouble, and yet he's, he's terrified to meet Esau. He hears that he's coming for him, and so what does he do? Well, we're told he sends him a present, and yet it's not just any present. It's not a present that you might just give to an equal. He's saying to Esau, you are my Lord, I will be your servant. And he specifically takes on that language. So we read in Genesis 32, 13 through 18. So Jacob stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present, a mincha, for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys, these he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present, a mincha, to my Lord, Esau. Something you give to a Lord. Furthermore, a generation later, when Jacob's sons have to go down to Egypt to buy grain because there's a famine in the land, um, and they don't know they're actually dealing with Joseph. He's the ruler. They don't know they're dealing with him. Um, at first, he knows who they are. 
He takes them and accuses them of being spies. He binds Simeon and he says, if you want your brother to be free, you have to bring your youngest brother, Benjamin, back to me and then, then I will release him to you. And they know this is never going to happen because Jacob, their father, will never release Benjamin having already lost um, Joseph. However, the famine continues and their food grinds down more and more. And so finally Jacob relents and he says, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present, a mincha, down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you, carry it back with, them, carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. And when they give it to him, what do they do? They bow down. Just as Jacob bowed down before Esau, when he meets him, he bows seven times, right? Again, it's a Lord-servant relationship when Amincha is given. Along these lines, then, perhaps one of the most common ways that this word occurs is really as tribute, tribute. And I think that's perhaps the word that gets, gets at this, uh, the meaning of this word the best. It's tribute, particularly to a king or emperor. This is actually why we opened up with Psalm 72. I often do this to you guys. You don't know, it's like, it's my gotcha moment, right? Psalm 72, verse 10. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute, or mincha. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. They are bringing gifts as a sign of submission to the Davidic king, right? All nations are subjected to the Messiah, to render tribute was a sign that you were someone's vassal. It was an acknowledgement that someone else was your Lord and you were their servant. For example, 2 Samuel chapter 8, David defeats the Syrians in battle, and it says, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. To give a mincha is not just to give a gift. It's to give tribute, and there, there is a servant-lord relationship that you are affirming when you give it. In this sense, then, to give tribute, it's an affirmation of loyalty and servanthood. It was how you pledged loyalty such that to give tribute to someone was to affirm that they were your Lord. To not give tribute was to say, you're not my Lord. In fact, in 1 Samuel 10, 27, when Saul is crowned king, we read, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present. It doesn't just mean they didn't give him like a nice little gift. Hey, you're king now. That was open rebellion. They're basically saying, this man's not our king, okay? He can be your king. We want nothing to do with this man. They were not pledging their loyalty and fealty to Saul this is why then when Israel came before the Lord as they were commanded to do so three times a year, God says, none shall appear before me empty-handed. Why? Because he's their covenant Lord. You never came before a covenant Lord as a servant without some kind of a gift. To do so was basically to say, you are not my Lord. It was not covenant loyalty, but covenant treachery. In fact, while the grain offering is not expiatory, really, 
Um, there's not so much an element of forgiveness of sins in any sense because there's no blood. Nevertheless, it seems to me um, it does secure covenant favor with God. It's interesting that oftentimes in Scripture, when someone gives their Lord a minka, a tribute, it is often to secure someone's favor. We saw this, for example, with Jacob and Esau, right? He's doing that to secure his favor. You are my Lord, I'm your servant, I'm securing your favor. We saw this with the 12 or the 10 brothers or 9 brothers, however there are, there are 10 brothers, when they go down before the man, they don't know it's Joseph. They're trying to secure his favor by this gift. I think that's an element of this. By pledging, giving tribute, you are also securing the covenant favor of the Lord. By contrast, to not give tribute to a ruler or to stop giving it was actually the way that you rebelled in the ancient world. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 17, we read of King Hoshea of Israel. It says, Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. But the king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea, for Hoshea sent messengers to the king of Egypt and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Or in the book of Ezra, when the walls in the city of Jerusalem is being rebuilt, remember the enemies of the Jews don't like that. They don't want to see that happen. What do they do? We're told they write a letter to King Artaxerxes and they say, now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. In other words, if you allow these guys to build up their city, as soon as they build it up, they're going to rebel against you. They're going to say, we will no longer pay tribute, because to pay tribute meant to be a loyal vassal. All of this, then, helps us to understand the purpose of the grain offering, or perhaps better called, the tribute offering. It was a way in which Israelites pledged and reaffirmed their covenant loyalty to Yahweh their Lord, and in so doing, they secured his covenant favor. Once you understand that, that the grain offering is a tribute offering in covenant loyalty, I think it helps us to make sense of three other elements um, that, that are related to the grain offering or the tribute offering. Um, and I've chosen just to kind of deal with them uh, one by one instead of going through the whole passage. All of these elements that we see, on their own, they could kind of mean various different things. But I think once you understand they're related to the tribute idea, to the idea of covenant loyalty and all that, when you see that, I think they all kind of make sense. And all three of these reinforce that idea of covenant loyalty. These three things are the following. First, there's a part of the offering that is burned on the altar, given to the Lord. It's called the memorial portion. The memorial portion. Verse 2 says that the priest shall take from it, the grain offering, a handful of fine flour and oil with all its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's the first part, a memorial portion. Second, if this offering were cooked into a loaf of bread, it had to be unleavened. You don't leaven raw grain or 
fine flour, so it doesn't really apply. If it was cooked in some way and were given various ways, it had to be unleavened. Verse 11 says, No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. Third and lastly, it was to be seasoned with salt. Verse 13 says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Those three elements, the memorial portion, the absence of leaven, and the seasoning with salt, I think they all relate back to and they reinforce the larger picture of covenant fidelity from servant to Lord. For example, with the memorial portion, the idea behind a memorial is the idea of a covenant sign. It's a sign of the covenant. It's something that reminds you of your covenant. In Scripture, to break covenant with God is to forget His covenant. To keep covenant with God is to remember His covenant. Deuteronomy 4.23, Take care lest you forget the covenant of your Lord, which He made with you. A memorial then reminds the worshiper of His covenant with His God. We see this in several ways. Covenant is a, or a memorial is a sign. For example, of keeping the Passover. The Lord says in Exodus 13.9, And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand, and as a memorial between your eyes. Notice, sign and memorial kind of go together, right? Or in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites cross over the Jordan, we're told, and Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Notice the juxtaposing of sign and memorial, right? So this memorial portion then, this grain offering that is given to the Lord was meant to be a sign and a reminder to the worshiper of their covenant with their Lord. In giving it, they were encouraged because they remembered, I am in covenant with Yahweh. But they were also challenged as they were called to faithfully remember his covenant in all of life. It points to covenant fidelity. Next, we're told that the offering was to be unleavened. Unleavened. This, too, points to covenant fidelity, I would say. You know, on the one hand, leaven is very much a picture of sin, especially in the New Testament. We see this. For example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice, leaven there is related to malice and evil. It's juxtaposed with sincerity, and truth. It's very much associated with sin. On the other hand, leaven is associated with decay and corruption. It was often noted this way in the ancient Near East and the ancient world um, 
uh, altogether. Interestingly, uh, the Greek philosopher Plutarch says that uh, the priest of Jupiter, he was not allowed to touch anything that was leavened. Why? Because it was of corruption. In the ancient world, it was very much a picture of corruption and putrefaction. And those of you who are you know, pioneer women who make your own bread, who have more time on your hands than you know what to do with, apparently, um, you know yeast is essentially something decaying. In fact, you have to be sure that you, you store it very carefully to kind of suspend that decay. You have to cover it, keep it away from light, you put it in the fridge, or else what will happen? It will eventually go bad. It's something in a state of decay. And so it was often understood in that way as well. This is why it says um, in verse 11 uh, that honey was also forbidden. Why? Well, as some of you know, some of you know quite well, Honey is made in the process of fermentation. It was often just like yeast used, and so it could be um, part of putrefaction and corruption as well. Now, in reality, this still fits really well with the idea of leaven as sin, right? After all, in the Bible, sin is not just morally wrong, it's corruption, it's decay, it leads to death. When Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they died. Death is a death of sin. Paul says, you were once dead in transgressions and sins, right? And so actually, corruption and sin, it all goes together. Here, however, although sin is still connected, I think that the offering is to be unleavened because leaven is a picture of decay and corruption, which is the opposite of covenant fidelity and stability. The covenant was to be stable and incorruptible. This also connects with the last element, namely salt. In many ways, salt is the opposite of leaven. Whereas, uh, whereas leaven is something that is decaying, salt preserves, can often stop decay. In the ancient world, salt was used on wounds to prevent them from rotting. It seems, actually, it was a very common practice in the ancient world that when newborns were born, they would salt them. I think some people still have this practice. Part of it was done because that was kind of an antiseptic in some way. In fact, it's mentioned in the book of Ezekiel 16.4. Speaking of faithless Israel, he says, As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. Part of that was because it was seen as cleansing. Interestingly, we would not do this because of the regulative principle, but it was very common in the early church, at least for the first few hundred years, that those who were about to be baptized, those who they're called catechumens, they were being catechized, they would also ritually eat salt. Um, and it was, it was part of their cleansing as newborn babes. And, and all of this comes because salt is seen as kind of an antiseptic, right? It's the opposite. Similarly, salt is very hard to destroy. Apparently, it's really hard to burn. Um, it, it can survive fire. It only burns at very, very high temperatures. So it's often seen as something that endures. It, it does not... Uh, corrupt and go bad, salt perseveres. We see this um, in various ways. 
For example, in verse 13 of our chapter, it doesn't simply talk about salt, but it talks about the salt of the covenant with your God. The connection is between the stability of salt and the stability of the covenant, right? We see this in several ways. For example, often when salt and covenant are mentioned together in the Old Testament, you find the word forever nearby. Makes sense, right? Salt, covenant, forever. It endures. For example, turn with me to Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. Numbers chapter 18, verse 19. All the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. Again, a covenant of salt is associated with perpetuity foreverness, okay? Next, 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5. 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. Again, all of this points back to perpetuity, foreverness. If, if, um, if leaven and yeast is a sign of decay and corruption, salt is a picture of stability and perpetuity and foreverness, exactly what the covenant was to be thought of. This means that on the one hand, the salt was a comfort to the worshiper. It symbolized that his covenant with God was stable and secure, but it was also a reminder to him to be salt, to have salt in his heart, so to speak, to be faithful, to not have the corruption of leaven, of unfaithfulness and treachery towards his God. Gordon Wenham writes, to add salt to the offering was a reminder that the worshiper was in an eternal covenant relationship with his God. This meant that God would never forsake him, and also that the worshiper had a perpetual due to up, duty to uphold and keep the covenant law. So all those three elements, the memorial portion, it's a sign of the covenant, the unleavenedness of, of the offering, leaven is corruption. You don't want leaven. We don't want a corrupted covenant this is fidelity between servant and Lord, and salt, it's perpetual. All those are, again, reinforcing this idea of tribute. This is tribute to the Lord. That, in a nutshell, I believe, brothers and sisters, is the significance of the grain offering. Uh, perhaps more, more accu accurately, we could refer to it as the tribute offering. With the time we have left, let us now consider and, and, and apply um, some things to... Uh, let's consider some application. <laughs> First and foremost, brothers and sisters, there is so much here that enjoins us to faithfulness and covenant fidelity. 
Um, Part of me wants to run to that right away. This is a picture of how we are to be faithful to the Lord, and that is all true. Nevertheless, I believe the primary application is that just as Christ is our burnt offering, so also Christ is our tribute offering as well. He is our grain and tribute offering on our behalf, insofar as he has forever secured God's covenant favor for us. When we place our faith in Christ, the Father, our great King and Lord, looks upon us as faithful servants, not treacherous rebels. Truly, our covenant is a covenant of salt. It's incorruptible. It cannot be corrupted. There's no leaven. It's perpetual. The old covenant was a covenant of salt in many ways. On the one hand, insofar as God was concerned, he would always be faithful. That was never a question. There was no leaven of covenant infidelity on the part of God. Insofar as the worshipers were concerned, however, though theirs was to be a covenant of salt, yet because the old covenant never took away the leaven of sin and corruption of the heart, they would always break covenant with God again and again. They would forget. They would not remember Indeed, they gave grain offerings to the Lord. They gave physical tribute to them, to Him. He despised their grain offerings. They missed what the grain offering pointed to, a holy heart in tribute to God. God says in Isaiah 66, 3, He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood, he who makes a memorial offering of frankincense, like one who blesses an idol. The true tribute that God desired, true covenant loyalty and fidelity, was the tribute of holiness and righteousness, but which under the old covenant none could give. Into this comes Jesus Christ, the ultimate servant of the Lord, Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Isaiah 52.13, Behold my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Christ is the covenant servant par excellence, never once forgetting the covenant of his God, having not even the slightest hint of leaven of corruption and treachery, but nothing but the salt of purity and fidelity as he served his God. The good news, Christian, is that Christ stands as your covenant surety. He acts on your behalf, and therefore he is your tribute offering to God. Benjamin Keach says, The stability of the new covenant depends upon the suretyship of Christ, and tis secured to believers thereby. The first Adam, in whose hands the whole estate and riches of mankind were trusted, ran out of all. The first Adam failed. He was not a good servant. And we, being descended from him, are by nature not good servants. Therefore, God established another covenant and constituted Christ as a responsible security of known fidelity and mighty to perform. To be the surety thereof, that so it might be a firm and sure covenant between him and man. Through Jesus Christ, our covenant is a covenant of salt. 
incorruptible. God's favor is secured. Your works this past week, Christian, may have much leaven in them and very little salt. You may have lived this past week often forgetting the covenant of your Lord and forgetting your covenant reward rather than remembering Him. Yet Christian Christ is your surety. Your covenant with God is secure because He is your perfect tribute offering. From this flows our following application, namely, since we are partakers of such an incorruptible covenant of salt, we ought to offer gifts and tribute to our great covenant God and King. Just because Christ offered the once uh, once for all one and done tribute offering does not mean that we are done giving offerings. We give them from a perspective of accomplishment. It has been finished. We look back to the finished work of God, and yet we still give tribute offerings. As I said in our opening, as we looked at Psalm 72, that is where this is all going. All the nations bringing tribute offerings, not to earn God's favor, but because they already have it through the gospel. Christian, what kind of tribute offerings do you bring before your Lord? We talked in Sunday school about how we ought to have reverence with our God, even though we are his children. We never lose reverence. It's part of the third commandment. On the one hand, we have very intimate fellowship with God. We are his children. Just as kids can run and play in front of their father, so also in a certain sense, we we have that freedom as his children. He loves us, right? On the other hand, we never lose the fact that he is our covenant Lord and we are his covenant servants, and we are never to appear before him empty-handed. What kind of gifts are you rendering to your Lord? The tribute that we are to offer are the gifts of holiness and righteousness, thankfulness and love, acts of service, purity, gentleness. These are all the things God desires from his servants and is well pleased to receive them. Purge out the leaven of sin from your tributes, brothers and sisters. Purge out lust. Purge out impurity of heart, pride, anger, jealousy, covetousness. Those are not things God wants. (laughs) Imagine going before a king with a rotting gift. Here, king, this is great tribute to you as my covenant Lord. That's what the sin is. Purge it out from your tribute offerings. Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, that Christ has secured God's favor. He is no longer just Lord, but Father, because Christ is our perfect grain or tribute offering. Rest in that, and all the more purge out the leaven and seek to grow in the salt of holiness. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that You sent your son to do which we were utterly incapable of. Lord, the history of the people of Israel is just the history of humanity rebelling against you, turning your mercies and spitting in in its face, rejecting you for things that cannot save, 
treacherous servants, Lord, rebels. And yet in your great love, you sent your son Christ to atone for our sin, to be our perfect tribute offering, offering perfect worship in our stead. You've redeemed us as children, no longer treacherous rebels, but faithful in Jesus Christ. You've purged out the leaven of original sin from our heart. We've been born again. Born again, Lord, with a living hope now. Oh, Father, would, would you enable us through your spirit to not, not be empty-handed before you this week, but to bring tribute offerings of holiness, the kind that you delight in. We ask this, Lord, in Christ's name.